when vinyl was first being put out, you know, maybe you'd get a 78 that was 10 inch and it would just have one song on each side. And if you wanted to get, I don't know, a lot of who some popular artists, maybe you'd buy five of their five of their 78s. Uh, and no one thought anything of, well, yes, yeah, so you listen to one and then you put the other on, then you put the other on. No one really thought about how, well, wouldn't it be nice to just have, say, a longer playing format where you could just hear it all in a row? That just wasn't seen as any hindrance. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we talk about the art and culture of running an independent record label. And we're back on the topic of vinyl. I'm obsessed with vinyl. I know a lot of people in our community are obsessed with vinyl. My goodness, I have been buying too much vinyl recently. I'm getting very specific in the type of records I buy, so at least there's some hope there. Um, but I had a record come in the mail last week that I've been waiting for for a long time to come on vinyl. And then I've got two more records that I'm really excited about coming this week as well. I need to stop, or maybe you guys could just go to our store and buy some courses or buy some of our books or whatever so that I could, because um, I'm running out of money, causing some problems here in my family. But if you would do that, then I could buy more vinyl. If not, that's fine. We could just instead talk about vinyl, like today's interview with my new friend, Jillian Gar, who wrote the, uh, was a co-writer on a book, um, called In the Groove. And if you are in bookstores or record stores over the holiday season, you may have seen it on end caps displayed. It's a very popular coffee table style book. Uh, and it's all about vinyl. It's about record stores. It's about the history of vinyl. And that's what we're talking about today. And so there's just like, it's a fun topic. There's lots to kind of explore. I think it's good for us as record labels and as indie artists to know about the history of the format that we um, that we make. As one of the things that I want to talk about in our newsletter uh, that you'll get today or whenever you listen to this or if you're on our newsletter is kind of why the history is important. Remember when we were in school and we we're like, why is history important? And so I kind of unpack um, 10 reasons why it's what we can take from the history of vinyl today as record labels making vinyl. Speaking of making vinyl, a huge shout out to our friends Hellbender Vinyl uh, for sponsoring today's episode and sponsoring all of our episodes this month and sponsoring our newsletter. Very supportive of our community. In fact, they're a brand new pressing plant in the Pittsburgh area, and I've heard it is Pittsburgh's only pressing plant. It's newest and only pressing plant, which is incredible. So if you're anywhere in that area, you have to go to hellbendervinyl.com. That's all one word, hellbendervinyl.com to check them out. They're founded and run by folks in our record label community who've been on the show in the past. And so a huge congrats to them and thank you so much to them for supporting the show. I hope you enjoy my interview with Jillian. We're talking about vinyl. I love talking about vinyl. I love talking about the music industry. I love collecting vinyl. I need to stop. I need help. Be sure to check out all my resources on vinyl by going to otherrecordlabels.com slash vinyl. You've written and contributed to so much in the world of music and artists and record labels, like our friends at Sub Pop, who we've had on the show here. Um, oh, and and then your new book uh, that you've contributed to, In the Groove, The Vinyl Record and Turntable Revolution, which I'm sure some of our listeners and our viewers maybe got for Christmas this year, because I, I saw <laughs> it uh, on a lot of end caps in the music stores here in Canada. Oh, oh. So it's um, I think I'm sure a lot of people picked it up. Let me ask you this question to get started. All of us are kind of born at various different times in this short life of the of recorded music, and we all have our different entry points into becoming a fan or becoming a collector. Can you share your 
early memories of of recorded music like what what it was that captivated you was it the artwork was it the environment or, or the the smell of taking the cellophane off <laughs> what do you have, what were your early memories of uh, of holding something in your hands well i definitely grew up with vinyl because uh, that was pretty much all there was i know um my dad did have a reel-to-reel tape deck oh. and my mother had said that at one point he had uh, persuaded her to record all their albums on this reel-to-reel tape because, you know, then you didn't have to keep the albums. It was easier to store it <laughs> and such. But then, you know, over the years, the oxide of the tape flakes off. So then, you know, she, she <laughs> you lose that. all your music. Yeah. So it's <laughs> always degeneration to, to worry about. But, I mean, so when I grew up, it was mainly uh, vinyl. Yeah. Uh, not singles so much. For a long time, I wasn't really that interested in singles because in America anyway, the single is on the album. So if you're buying the album, why would you buy the single? Right. And yes, the album costs more, of course, but then it's better value for money right. because you get songs. So I really didn't buy um, albums that much. And then I do remember when the next format came in, recording tape, which I mentioned the reel to reel, but that was more of an esoteric thing uh that wasn't the standard thing you'd find in most homes sure but then cassette and eight track came in and so there was that kind of vying for which was going to be the dominant one and i i preferred cassettes because they were they didn't have that thing when you're <laughs> on eight track especially in the middle of a song i mean this is this one funny memory that that sticks in my mind and this would have been in let's see i don't know the 80s maybe the early 90s when i was working at the rocket magazine in seattle and the art director had brought in this uh sort of huge component stereo system the kind that came in you know it looked like a table in itself long and wooden and everything and it had an eight track deck so he would pick up all kinds of eight tracks which were were dirt cheap then. Well, they probably still are, I suppose. But that was when, you know, you could, cassettes were the dominant one, so eight tracks, you couldn't give them away. But one night I was there with one of the editors, we were working on our stuff. And uh, so you turn up the music loud because the office is closed. It's just you up there. And there was an eight track of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Okay. And we're listening to that. And the time warp is playing. And then all of a sudden it starts to fade out. And I thought, wait a minute, that's only the first verse. What's going on? And then, and then we heard this, ka-chung, and then it changes <laughs> and it fades right back up. That's so, right. <laughs> right in the middle of the song. And the other was in another room, but we both just cracked up. Oh, yes. So, you know, <laughs> I've heard of that limitation. I, haven't, I don't have too much experience with A-tracks. My grandparents, I would play them, but I heard recently of that of that time limit on them that's that's so hilarious no wonder yeah, they didn't yeah. last <laughs> and they didn't program it right plus they were always jamming in the machines they didn't seem like a good medium yeah but certainly as a child uh my parents had it was mostly albums i don't really remember them having 45s much at all a few 78s mm-hmm. and uh, certainly when i was very young i wasn't allowed to touch them or play them you know adults had to operate this <laughs> this kind of thing and there was a they had the album Frankie Yankovic's Greatest Hits. Okay. And there was a song on that called Who Stole the Kishka, which is a really great rousing song. And they're going, yep, yep, throughout. Yeah. And that just really 
inside of me as a child, but you know, I couldn't play it myself. So you had to wait wow. for them to play it. Yeah. And so there was just that it wasn't, you couldn't touch it. So you didn't have it available all the time. And now I have, now I have that song and I can listen to who stole the Kishka whenever, whenever I want. Whenever you want. What a rebel. It, and that's such a, that's such a cool memory because that type of patience is, I mean, something we don't have we don't have to have it today. We don't, and and kids today have no concept of of waiting for something. And I mean, it's for me, it's always been, you know, for you, it was waiting for your parents to allow you to put on that song, or for <laughs> me, it was waiting on the radio for that song to come on, and hopefully, I could hit mm-hmm. record. And yes. then, and then when MP3s came along when I was in high school, it was waiting to download a song, waiting for three hours for that one download to come in. So it's always a waiting <laughs> game for a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um I remember. So let's see. When would this have been? I guess late seventies, early eighties, uh, when you started learning about imports and you know that records the same record that came out in another country might not be the same track listing or it would sound yeah. different. Yeah. Like those first two Clash albums, they had just had a completely different running order. So, you know, trying to track those down and you'd have to write, you'd have to send off for them and hope that your letter arrived and then hope that the package came back. And if it was going overseas, you know, to England, that could take months. And you're that sending a money order or something? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have to figure out how to send it in different, uh, <laughs> different currency. Yeah. And that's why when you traveled and... I, I remember a friend telling me this where he was coming home from England one time and he had so many albums when he came home, you know, customers was grilling him about that because they were thinking, is this a business you're running? And he's no, I'm just a music fan. <laughs> and, you know, I had, I wasn't grilled by customs agents cause I didn't bring that many records back, but yeah, I, I certainly would pick up things in England and you had to carry them with you cause you couldn't get a box to check, check them sure. like a suitcase and they yeah. might get broke. Yeah, so, that's I'll, so I'll, so interesting. Talk to me a, real quick about the concept of the album, because you would refer to the fact that there were singles available. And if we do trace this back to, and we can talk about this a little bit, for as much as, as you and I know about the, the 12-inch and the 7-inch. Um, but I, I, I read, and this was something that was talked about a lot in the 2000s when they came out with MP3s. They called it the death of the album. And I'm not talking about any sort of format, but it's just that idea of a collection of songs uh, in what, you know, whether it's a cohesive collection of songs like Frank Sinatra or if it's a compilation. Um, I loved that image of it going all the way back to single 78s in a, a photo album, literally a photo album. And, and that's where we get that. I'm curious, because you said that you were more interested in albums. There was an accusation back then and in the book and an accusation in the 2000s that there was a lot of filler on those albums, that you would have the A-sides, you'd have the the big songs, and then everything else was filler. I just find that hard to believe in the 90s and 2000s, and I find it hard to believe in the 70s and 60s as well, that an artist would allow for quote-unquote filler, or that they would even write filler. What, what do you know about that? Oh, well... You know, I think I think the idea of filler on albums is is more we think of in the pop genre and acts mm-hmm. that were considered to not be around very long. Mm-hmm. And you said something really interesting that kind of it also explains a lot of it. You said, you know, why would they write filler? Well, a lot of these artists didn't write songs at all. <laughs> sure, <laughs> that wasn't very that wasn't necessarily um, the standard. Mm. I'm just I'm writing a thing now about the 
the Meet the Beatles album coming out in America and just how it's different from the UK version. And there's only one cover on there. And and I point out, you know, this was just as in, this was as important a thing about the Beatles as their music. The fact that they wrote all their own songs. Right. And certainly there were some artists in the rock era that wrote their own, own songs. You think about, well, the early rockers like Chuck Berry mostly wrote his songs. Mm. Um, but, you know, Jerry Lee and Little Richard didn't necessarily write sure. them. The Beach Boys or mainly Brian Wilson wrote their songs, but still it was pretty common for uh, an artist to just rely on professional songwriters. That's right. Uh, yeah. So that was, uh, so these artists that on, on these albums were not, you know, writing their own stuff. And uh, certainly with stuff, especially aimed at the teen market. Um, and in this country where you'd have a single on an album, they figure, oh, the, the kids are going to buy the album because of the hit singles. Right. So we don't have to care about the rest of the stuff. So yeah. it was just to fill it out so they could sell this higher price thing. I'm sure that, you know, once you got to someone of, of the stature of a Sinatra, say, is mm. by that point in his career, by the 50s and 60s, when soundtrack, when long players are becoming more of the standard, you know, someone like him, he could say, no, I'm not going to record that song because he's Frank Sinatra. That's right. Or a well-known established act would probably have more say. But a new act, especially, uh, you know, a young pop band um, would not have that full. So, yeah, they'd kind of be forced to do point. that. Yeah. Forced to do that. And if you look at um, a lot of uh, biographies of the Beatles, they point out that that one thing about them was that all th their albums as a whole were good mm. because it wasn't just the popular song and then filler. Um, so, you know, they, they were quality. And then finally, by the time of, of Rubber Soul, where their writing had become more sophisticated, it that's really, I think, when you see get the idea of an album, a rock album anyway, or a, being a piece of art. You know, mm. it doesn't have to be just a random collection of things. It can they can all be good songs, and maybe they can all have a a theme or not concept album per se, but just of the same type of of um, song. Well, that's so interesting, and and you're right. That timeline does really um, line up where other people would start to try to aim for you know whether it was pet sounds or or whatever album that would come after that and they would aim for a cohesive vision um mm, that the, the the thing that we all a lot of songwriters still try to aim for today and i i was always offended when people said that the uh, mp3s or streaming the fact that you could take songs a la carte and make your own albums or your own playlists I was always offended by that, um, that, that, but all music fans would want to do that and that artists would want their musics, uh, chopped apart. Uh, Cause, um, I still, I'm still extremely passionate at making full length albums as an artist and enjoying full length albums, uh, albums as a music fan. Yeah. Uh, I know sometimes I'll read, uh, I can't, I keep bringing up the Beatles, but that's okay. <laughs> People saying, yeah, when I listen to such and such an album, I always skip over this song. Right. Um, I hear that most in talking about the Beatles, but you read that with other things oh, too. Sure. And if I'm like an album, I don't skip over the songs because I just see it as a complete work. Yeah. Sometimes if I just want to hear one song, sure. then, you know, I'll listen to that or you're changing the CDs or whatever to hear the one song. But if I put an album on, I just play it all the way through. 
Of course, yeah, and I mean the the uh, the idea of skipping uh, on the gr- on on vinyl is much harder to do than on a CD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's. We're gonna be all over the place here, and and I hope that's okay. So we're gonna kind of like hop over decades and back and forth. But I want to, you know, what's so fascinating to me in the book in the first chapter alludes to this: the idea that the the original lifespan of vinyl was maybe only a quarter century. I mean, just from invention to when people started to talk about cassettes and when then, and so <clears throat> I find it so interesting we're maybe only a hundred years into this recorded music experiment and we have, we have vinyl and then we have, and, and all the different types of vinyl and acetate. And then we have cassettes and, and popularity of cassettes and a tracks attempting that and everybody gets like 10, 20 years in the sun until the next one comes along, the CD comes along, and and then um, iTunes and MP3s comes along, and then they only had 10 or 15 years until streaming. The part of the story that's so interesting that we have yet to see is one of those formats, namely vinyl, coming back to life. Mm-hmm. And um, I just find that really, really fascinating. Have you given much thought to why that is? I mean, it's just, it's seemingly unprecedented. It's not to say it's not going to happen again with CDs or tapes, but um, I I just find that part of the story so fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I've wondered about why vinyl has come back. Uh, I know in my chapter, I point some of the turnaround to the start of record store day and sure. sort of finding vinyl and trying to get people back into the stores where you'd, you'd buy a physical product. But when you were listing all those formats, I started thinking that one reason those formats all came along after vinyl is that they were all about portability, being able to mm. take your music with you. Mm. I mean, once you, first you had tapes and, and so you'd put a tape player in your car yeah. and then they had the Walkman so you could, hear the tape when you were walking around. And so every other format has been like that. You know, the the CDs came along and again in the car or the CD player and even with the with the MP3s and the and the streaming too. You can get something in your car to stream if you can get a connection, which that's that's the flaw in that system. <laughs> but um also, you know, I think of yeah, you can download MP3s on a player and and take them around. Well, heck, I bought an MP3 player for when I go to the dentist. <laughs> you know, just plug in. Yeah, that's right. It never overpowers what they're doing in your teeth, though. I can still hear it. Mm, yeah, but it, it, it's a bit of a distraction. That's a good point. I should try that. But, um, I was thinking about this today in, in advance of the interview and wondering, and I haven't talked to a younger person about this or read this, so you know, I don't know, but I grew up... Uh, with vinyl, as I said, so I saw those things. And I just wonder if part of it might be the novelty factor of uh, seeing a 12-inch album, you know, in its big folder. You know, they didn't grow up like that, so maybe there's something kind of exotic about it because it wasn't part of the way they grew up. And they realized, wow, just having something that big you could hold. Uh, well, I think... I know I put that in, in my chapter um, on record stores where... I said when the MP3s and streaming came along, that that was the first sound format that you couldn't actually hold. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't hold For the MP3. Sure. You hold the device that it's on or that you yeah. download it yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But you can't hold it. And obviously streaming. 
Although streaming, you know, that's what we used to call listening to the radio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but there was something more, uh, the lack of control had, yeah, was yeah, more alluring. Say, uh, well, I think the word portability, and I talk about vinyl and I talk about formats and marketing and sales on this show every single week. And the term portability has not been an argument I've heard before. And I really like it. And I think you're onto something because... It, vinyl is the least practical out of all of them. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I, cause I do have a question here about is the inevitable re revolution, is it inevitable we'll see a revolution in CDs or cassettes? And I know there's cassette subcultures out there. And for me, I was born in 83. So everything that I started with was cassettes and I have, I've since replaced all of my childhood cassettes. I've gotten them back and I, they're in my living room and I, and I listened to one this morning. I listened to them a lot. There is a in, insanely close visceral connection to my childhood through these cassettes that I don't have with vinyl. At the same time, I have more vinyl. I buy more vinyl. I'm obsessed more with vinyl, but I will, I just want to say that this idea of portability that um, all of those other formats were about convenience to, to where we get to the absolute ultimate so far the ultimate convenience which is right now i can just say an album name and it'll start playing and mm. um so yeah i really i like that a lot do you think that's an argument for why maybe we won't see the same type of revolution for cds or cassettes and i won't hold you to this i won't take this out as a <laughs> soundbite in 10 years from now but do you think that's an argument as to maybe why we may not see that same revolution? Well, I think the convenience of of things you download or stream will always always be there. I guess one thing I find kind of frustrating is that people tend to talk in terms of a format beating out another format. And <laughs> I'm more likely to think, why can't they just coexist? coexist. Good for uh, you. Like with books, when when ebooks came out, they said, oh, this will be the death of the physical book. Yeah. And uh, it it actually hasn't been at all. The and opposite. They said that yeah, that ebooks peaked and then they don't sell as much. Yeah. I mean, certainly they could they could have their their practical advantages. You get a, a Kindle or whatever the other readers are, and if you're going on vacation or if you're a student, say mm -hmm. uh, instead of buying all those textbooks, you just have yes. them all in this device. Yes. Um, but at the same time, you know, books have their value too. I saw some. Uh, an e interview with Jeff Bezos where he'd said how you know the book was the most perfect form of technology but then his next sentence was something like and I want to outdo it or outperform <laughs> it or get rid of it you know well, if you think it's so great why do you want to get rid of it yeah which yeah it is I mean because you don't need anything except light so mm. so if, if you don't have electricity you just wait for the sun to come up yeah and you can read yeah and um I, I wonder sometimes with, I think about this with books, but it would be just as true with music too. Well, maybe not quite because of the difficulty of finding a player, but, you know, maybe you have a book that your grandmother gave you and you treasure that because it's something that your grandmother owned. You know, your grandmother's book gave it to your mother and your mother gave it to you. So it's like this family thing and it, it has that sentimental value and just, um, having music available through streaming and such, you know, you don't have that kind of sentimental connection. Mm. So 
certainly, but certainly the um, convenience of having that, that's going to be there. But I think people may also just, uh, you know, have a lure for uh, a fondness for physical media too, even if it doesn't match that. Um, I I think there's also the practical element, the practical side of that too. I've seen this, and this was talking about movies. Um, I was, I was on Facebook and some group I'm in, the Rocky Horror Picture Show group. And someone said, ah, Rocky isn't streaming on Hulu anymore. Where can I see it? And so a couple of us chimed in and said, that's why we have the DVD. (laughs) (laughs) I've, someone came in to my place once and they're looking at all my books and said, Oh, you know, why don't you just get rid of all this and you can read it all online. And, um, when you can't, not everything yeah, is on right. there. Yeah. When things are on there, then they disappear. That's right. And, uh, yeah. 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 So yeah. you mentioned speaking into your device, say, Oh, I'd like to hear such and such an album, but then what if it's not streaming anywhere? You gone? won't yeah. Yeah. experience it. Yeah. So, Certainly, if it's something I want to see a lot, uh, or like Beatle records, or if, if it's something I want to own, if something I know I'm going to want to listen to over the years, yeah. like who's the Kishka, then I will, <laughs> I will buy that in some physical format so that I have it. Well, and then when you have it, you know, now you could pop it in your. I do have, still have disk drives. You could rip it, yeah. burn it elsewhere, yeah. stream it sure. elsewhere, but got it. Well, you're absolutely right. And this speaks to what your first point of coexisting and, and there is no, you're right. I, I, I did start this off by saying that the cassette were, was meant to get rid of vinyl and that CDs were meant to get rid of tapes. And I know a lot of people who probably threw out each previous format, rebought all their favorite records, thinking it was better and so on. And even between CDs and MP3s, there was essay CDs and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but it does seem, in hindsight, it seems ridiculous. It seems like there are applications. I mean, I have a big vinyl collection. I listen to tapes. I listened to a cassette this morning. At the same time, of course, I've got Spotify. I've got Apple Music. I've got devices all over the place to listen to music. And so there, there really is something enjoyable about having all of the formats. Um, and I don't know why we have that tendency to pit them against each other. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think part of that is marketing. You know, they mm. want you to to buy it because they'll, especially with the music. That is one thing I, I guess maybe I was thinking about this more with movies. I thought, God, I hope they don't get rid of DVDs completely because uh, I don't want to buy it all again. Right. You know, you had it on yeah. VHS. Yeah. yeah. DVD. At least Blu-ray players will play DVDs. So. Yeah, I mean, those industries aren't they aren't mirroring each other exactly the same way. The book and ebook one is kind of similar um, versus the, you know, vinyl and digital. It, it is kind of interesting because a lot of people, they won't poo-poo uh, ebooks, but they really, th- there is a convenience on a cruise ship. You don't want to bring all of your books with you or on a, on a plane, but, um, you know, having that bookshelf at home is it really means something it's something very meaningful in the same way that records are so yeah who knows what's going to happen with dvds i heard best buy is removing all of their physical media this week from their store um yeah it's it's all very interesting let's let's see if we can go back and 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 i'll help you out and you help me out try to fill in some of the blanks here going back um to the start of vinyl records and and then maybe where how it got to the most common 
application or the most common presentation, which would be a 12-inch LP album by one artist. Um, and then at the same time, in tandem with that, would be seven inches uh, as well. So how far are you willing to go back with this, with the invention of vinyl that you've, that you've discovered in, in some of your research and some of your writings? Well, I never saw anyone make this point exactly, but certainly you can see from the early days of vinyl until long players, there didn't seem to be any idea that you, wait, but let me, let me rephrase that a bit. When vinyl was first being put out, you know, maybe you'd get a 78 that was 10 inch and it would just have one song on each side. And if you wanted to get, I don't know, a lot of who some popular artists, maybe you'd buy five of their five of their 78s. Uh, and no one thought anything of, well, yes, yeah, so you listen to one and then you put the other on, then you put the other on. No one really thought about how, well, wouldn't it be nice to just have, say, a longer playing format where you could just hear it all in a row? That just wasn't seen as any hindrance. What I think happened, and actually I, I have read this, was that uh, they were looking for ways to uh, better present music that wasn't a longer format, especially classical music. Right. So that's where that's where you see that divide happening. Um, and certainly when long players came in, that was their advantage. They could have a complete uh, musical movement from a classical symphony, say, um, symphonic piece on one side, 20 yeah. minutes or however much it was. And whereas before in the other format, you know, you maybe have, you'd have to hear it in chunks. Yeah. And now you can hear it in a longer format. Whereas it wasn't felt as necessary to do that with um, pop music, popular sure. music. Popular in the broadest sense, not meaning pop rock like we might think of. Um, and I also saw there was kind of a generational divide, especially when 78s were more replaced by 7 inches and 45s, whether that was a 45 or, or an EP, those were things that, that kids were more likely to buy or younger people. Okay. Whereas adults who maybe had money and had more esoteric tastes, they would want a classical music album or something like, uh, you know, a Nat King Cole or Frank Sinatra. Sure. They present albums for those for the adult market because they had more money. Uh, so you had that kind of thing, economic and generational. That's that's really great, and I want to I want to go back to that because that is very astute, and and um, I do want to talk about the difference between seven inch and twelve inch, and I hadn't really thought about it it being kind of just a cooler, cheaper format. The seven inches. Um, just going back to classical music, I think there was a mention in the book about somebody even thinking, hey, if we're going to do an entire piece of music or entire movement on vinyl, maybe we should go bigger than twelve inches. And I think there was an experiment that made even bigger. Am I right? It makes th up to 30 inches, uh, a 30 inch record or something. <laughs> oh, I don't see how that could be practical. Yeah, no, I don't either. Um, I'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to confirm with the book and put it in the, the show notes, but I'm very, very certain that there was a wild experiment to go even bigger. The funny thing that the book had mentioned is how the, the landing on 12 inches was just completely random. It was probably just an American saying, well, 12 inches is we, how we like to measure things <laughs> one foot. <laughs> That's so funny. So the, the 12 inches in the, and the seven inches are interesting. So 
back then, I mean, it was a, kind of a, a little bit of a competition. Is that not true? There was a little bit of a competition between the two formats before we realized we could have both? Now, I'm not sure. I'd have to look at the history about that. I would think maybe not so much because LPs were more for adults and mm. seven inches were more for younger people or teenagers. Okay. And it was, I was thinking we were talking about portability. That was sort of the 45 was was the one that was portable. Maybe we've all seen pictures of 50s or early 60s at some pajama party or sock hop or something where <laughs> you'd have a case. You'd have a little case where you could put all your 45s in because right. that would be easier than a whole bunch of albums. Yeah. And a lot of teenagers probably didn't have them anyway. A teenager, maybe we've all seen this picture of someone in, you know, like a Bobby Socks or in her bedroom and she has a little, one of those little portable uh, record players that used to open up yep. like a suitcase. Yeah, and it, I think it even came in. Some of them came in a sort yeah. of a suitcase. You could take those around. Yeah, and then uh, friends would come over and they'd have their cases with the forty fives in them that you would that you would play. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's that is very interesting. I I never thought because I had I had read that it was maybe RCA who was pushing the forty fives and 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 perhaps the seven inches as well. But uh, and then it was Columbia who thought no 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 let's make these bigger. It was probably whenever they both conceded that there is a world for both of them because like you mentioned, the kids with the 45, but also jukeboxes, right? Preferred that format. Yeah. 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 They didn't, I don't think it's a jukebox. It has, has an album. Yeah. And also, um, you know, with, with uh, a single being on an album, that meant the seven inch was a promotional device right. for the 12. Right. So it's, they could kind of work in tandem that way. That's so interesting. I I want to ask you, fast forward to now, I mean, the 12-inch LP continues to, like in today and part of the new kind of revolution, the 12-inch the is dominant. It continues to sell crazy amounts of, of old records from the 60s, 70s, 80s, as well as all of the new stuff that they're doing. But I don't think the same can be said for the seven inch, maybe in some genres or some subcultures, but for a lot of record labels in our communities, people who listen to this show, it's really hard to make seven inches work financially. There just doesn't seem to be an appetite for them. Hmm, I hadn't thought about that. I think maybe some people now, uh, well, I don't know about the cost, but maybe some people, even if they have three or four songs, maybe they prefer to put them out on a 12 inch, like an EP because it makes more of an impact. Mm. Of course, that's what Sub Pop did in, in the 80s. Mm. Uh, a lot of those early records they put out, they put out EPs because you you had would have the impact of the 12-inch cover with the Charles Peterson photograph on it. Right. Uh, even though it only had three or four songs, and which they could have put on a 7-inch on a because you could have four songs on a 7-inch EP. But, um, but yeah, I hadn't thought about, about that. I mean, certainly I think... Uh, with punk or an alternative genre, people might be more likely to put out singles yeah, that way. That's where I, I agree. Uh, artists I know, it's like they don't even think of putting out a single. They just say, well, let's do an album instead. If they're putting it on vinyl, they won't bother putting out a single. Maybe it's just more cost effective to put an album out. I think today, just with the amount of effort to get a graphic designer to put something together and to get the the music ready and everything, I mean, the price to do 100 or 207 inches is not that far off from doing 100 or 212 inches. 
And, and then I think the biggest issue too is what is it worth? I mean, maybe there was a time, you can tell me, but maybe there was a time where you could sell these for a few dollars as or give them away as promotional items. But if you're sinking a thousand dollars or more into manufacturing these and you're only doing a hundred, that means you need to sell them for $10 each, a one song thing. It's not very app uh, appetizing for fans, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the questions that always interests me is, and and we don't have to go back too far to discover this because we can still see it today with Apple and Spotify, but you look back to these formats and the releases and they came from companies, originally they came from companies who sold the machines and it's it was mirrored with with Apple, you know, um, when when they were had a music store in in hopes of selling their iPods in the same way that Edison wanted to sell the his recording machines or his playback machines. Um, it just seems like the roots of some of this industry is rooted in artists and and music being used as just a utility much like they are today for the tech companies. Um, have you have you any thoughts on this type? I mean, it seems problematic and it seems like some of the issues we have today with streaming, taking advantage of artists or not paying artists properly, that there is a, there is a history to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing I really dislike about today is the, the planned obsolescence in all, all of our devices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you bought, uh, well, heck, I have, I have a stereo that, um, you know, when did we get, I got it last century. <laughs> and it still works, you know, it, it still plays. And uh, your devices, they, after a few years when you can't update its operating system or whatever, then it just, well, it, it might still work, but you can't do new stuff no, with it. Yeah, so yeah. I find that very frustrating. Um, I hate having to buy new computers and new phones all the time. Yeah. And I guess people are too tied up in that to all say, no, we won't buy them. Um, Cause yeah, there's some improvements, but others, I just, I don't think they need to keep uh, well upgrading an operating system. Mm. It used to be only every couple of years. And now I think with Apple, it's every year they have a new operating system. So yeah, yeah. yeah I, I dislike that part of it. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> I agree. I absolutely agree. Yeah. And it is, it's again, it, because it's happening so fast and it's such a short time, you know, from when I started, even when I started this podcast or when I started this label, there was CDs still had a little bit of a grasp and we're still selling quite a bit. And, but then it gets harder and harder to find CD players. And so, yeah. you're, you know, you have to get used ones. And then same with cassette players and, and even turntables. It's, it's um, who's repairing them. And yeah, it's, a, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think that maybe they would have, what they're doing with uh, our devices now, maybe they would have done that back then, the same thing back then too, if they could. It's just technology developing fast. I mean, first you just had, uh, well, it would be a a mono, a mono turntable, not turntable, you know, a mono system. Yeah. And this area was the next big invention, but you could still get a record, your record would still play. Sure. The stereo record play on on your mono device and then maybe you'd get into more high-end audiophile things but you could still use a cheaper format if you wanted to yeah yeah no and it's amazing and i i don't know anything about how those things work on the inside but you know my stereo downstairs is made up of 
parts from the 90s, 80s, and 70s, and they're playing records from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it is amazing how many other pieces of tech I've gone through in, in how long those, those things have been alive and are still kicking, much like furniture as well. <laughs> um, let me ask you about my favorite topic in this whole uh, thing, and that's artwork. I love artwork and and probably one of the main reasons why I love going back to to vinyl and it's the bigger artwork, but it's more than that too. It's just, it's even ugly artwork is more fascinating <laughs> when it's big. Um, and so I'm just kind of interested in, in your thoughts on uh, if that played a role in the original popularity of records and um, perhaps it plays a bigger role in today's recent resurgence? Well, I don't know if artwork played a role in, in popularizing albums at originally? all. But, but yeah, originally. Mm, okay. But uh, certainly it became more developed mm -hmm. over the years and, and more sophisticated. You know, now you have books, the 100 best album covers of all time, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. I know when I was, um, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was looking into things along that line, I had read that uh, in the 50s, especially when they were putting out albums by black artists, a lot of times they would put a white person on the cover. Uh, mm. And that's so I started noticing that. It was something I hadn't thought about before. But then once it was pointed out, and I'd see, yeah. And there would I remember there was like a Nat King Cole album, I think it was. And you don't see Nat on the cover. There was some white woman, you know, hugging her boyfriend type wow. of thing or just her man and um so yeah, if you go back and look you'd see that i a gotta lot find one of those that's interesting more, more open prejudice yeah of that yeah kind of similarly in a way to when they would um make uh musical films that might have segments by black artists and I, this might have even happened with some of the rock films uh where artists would just sort of be presented doing their songs and because they weren't really part of the narrative mm. that way you could cut out the black person's performance if you were showing the film in the South, say. So <laughs> crazy. People don't realize how ingrained that kind of thing was. And I, they say, oh, that was a while ago. Well, you know, 50s and 60s, that's not that long <laughs> that's ago. That's your living memory. That's your, yeah, that's right. Your grandparents' um, high school memories. Yeah, that is so, so bizarre. I mean, it, yeah, that's crazy. And, and that's interesting that that would, would come into play on artwork i know that i remember hearing about like the ink spots and how there was like kind of a white equivalent boy band at the time there was like a i mean it was very common to have one song sung by black artists and then the same song sung by white artists for a different application yeah well you saw that a lot in the 50s yeah. where people were, um little richard or chuck berry songs right you know, white artists, because it was popular and I thought, oh, this could sell. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe a white person could get on the radio easier than a black person. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's right. why you saw Pat Boone covering Little Richard songs, which he said later he didn't really want to do. It was, uh, but, you know, his manager sure. and other people said, you are recording this. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so going well, back to that, he had a bit more feeling for those kind of songs because mm, yeah. that was his show. Yeah. But um, just to to talk about artwork again, yeah. um, and I'd have to, 
I'm not sure if this happened before. Well, I guess they didn't really have albums before, before the 50s. But I think that seems to be the decade where you start seeing covers that become classic and, and iconic, like Elvis Presley's first album with it has Elvis Presley down there in like the yeah. pink and green, I think yeah. it is. Yeah. Forming. And that cover has been parodied many times sure. over the years. Sure. Sure. You know, classic. Or with the Beatles in the next decade in the 60s, they point to them as being really innovative as far as rock album covers. Because the first one, and I'm talking about the UK covers, because those were the ones that, that they invested more in. Okay. And the first one, they're just looking down over a balcony. It's kind of a typical shot of a pop group. But then for the next one, they just, they really go, go up a grade, um, up a level to something a lot more sophisticated. The cover for With the Beatles, which they did use that photo for, um, meet the Beatles in this country where it's very arty and mm. they're all they're all in shadow and you just saw their faces mm. uh, three and then Ringo at the bottom and they're kind of in half shadow too and that photographer had done a similar shot of jazz musicians in England he was British so oh. he just used the same idea for the Beatles but it was very sophisticated sure. for rock group and um, you could see they would they would bring that to to their future covers, um, like Rubber Soul, which I think in England when it came out, I think that cover doesn't have their name on it, which that was considered immensely groundbreaking to oh, not have the art. Yeah, that's right. Revolver doesn't have the, their name either. Right. I guess because you know, the they're so big, you don't need sure. to have the name yeah. on the cover. But yeah. uh, in, in the Beatles anthology, they talk about how for Rubber Soul, the photographer had taken pictures and then he brought them, he met with them to show them the pictures. And what he did was he had them on slides and was projecting them on a 12 by 12 piece of, you know, white cardboard or something. Mm -hmm. So they could see what it would look like as an album in, you know, real life. And Paul said that, you know, the cover, the cardboard was propped up against the wall, but then, then it slipped. And so it kind of elongated their faces. Oh. And the Beatles just latched onto that and thought, that looks interesting. Yes. Can you print it so it looks like that? Oh, and wow. so that's why you get that kind of stretched look on that cover, which was just a happy accident. But see, they were um, fairly sophisticated themselves as far as art, were interested in art and what was going on and in other fields besides just music. Mm. And because by then, they're, you know, biggest group in the world they could call the shots as far as this is what we want on our album covers. But then, you know, that gets, that goes out there and then that becomes an influence. People think, Oh yeah, I could do, I, I could do, do something like this yeah. too. Yeah. So, yeah. It's so interesting. You saw this uh, period where the cover was regarded, you know, it wasn't just the sleeve that you kept the album in so it wouldn't get scratched. It was part of the whole package mm -hmm. music and the cover and the artwork and what might have been on the back liner notes or whatever. I guess what you're, I take from what you're saying is that there would have been this tipping point in, at some point in the 60s where the music fan would, would be under the impression that the album cover came from the creative minds of their artists that they love as opposed to just some designer at the record label. Yeah, and I mean, certainly that still happened. There were certainly artists or bands, musicians, performers, where the design department took over. Right. But I think certainly if you had more clout, yeah. uh, you know, you could have a say. Yeah. Well, I think, I think of the monkeys for the, the second album, more of the monkeys, 
they hated that cover and they didn't even know an album was coming out. They were on tour and they thought they would come back and start work on their next album. But Don Kirshner had gone through the vaults and was just put this album together. And it had these pictures from a photo session they'd done modeling clothes for J.C. Penney, which <laughs> that was okay for the ads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were very unhappy it was on an album cover. Oh, so my they had, gosh. Uh, I think they got, well, Kirshner was out soon after that for a lot of reasons. Right. Artists well, recognize the importance of that. I I need to do a deep dive because I, I, I forgot about that 50s homogenous look of track titles on the front and big names on the front, Johnny Cash and even Blue Note and, and you know, um, Elvis Presley and then into the Beatles and ever, all that they experimented. And then what that did into the 70s with hypnosis and and the, just the kind of the most of the iconic ones that we think of now are, are from the 70s. Yeah, yeah. And I'd have to look into this. And you mentioned hypnosis and... Um, I'm not sure how much say, I'm, I don't know how much influence Pink Floyd had on the covers, but they chose those designers. They chose the design company of Hypnosis specifically because they had an aesthetic that the band liked. Yeah. So I think I think I have the impression that the designers really came up with the concepts and didn't necessarily work off what the band wanted. You're right. I could be wrong. No, I no, I 100%. Well, I I'm 90% sure that you're right, and I yeah. think. It, it, they the hypnosis kind of uh, there's a documentary out um, on uh, one of the streaming platforms. I need to get it to watch it on hypnosis so I can speak with a little more authority. But I think you're right. I think they kind of became um, what you were referring to the Beatles as becoming, whereas hypnosis just became iconic uh, at doing album covers, and bands would just go to them and say, "What do you have?" And and in some cases, I, I'm forgetting the gentleman's name who passed away not too long ago, um, the main designer there. But in some cases, they would open the filing cabinet, pull out an idea, and say, "Here you go." Quite literally. Um, anyway, that's a it, that's an interesting part of it. But it really does speak to that whole journey of um, to you know to where we are today with album covers and how important they are. So fun. Um, let's wrap up. And I, and I want to ask you, um, we, had, we talked about filler. That's good. I and mean, we, we've talked about, you know, we've hopped all over the place. Um, just real quickly about record stores and, and some of the roles that they're playing. Um, back then, the act of going to the record store to discover a record or to buy it on release day, we don't need that necessarily today to 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 hear if an al a band has a new album out whether or not they have a new album out and or to to even sample it of course we don't need that a record store for that for me personally it's about the hunt i know for a lot of people and you allude to this a little bit in the book it's about community um and 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 i know in in larry's book about record store day the same thing it was it was, it was about that kind of celebration of music altogether, almost like a church service. So can you talk to me a little bit about the record store um, and and is the role of the record store today similar at all to how it was in the 70s and 80s? Well, um, that's the thing I hadn't thought about that much, but certainly, yeah, you could, if you want a record, you'd probably go online first to see, oh, where can I get it? But that, I think the online experience seems to be more like going for a specific thing. Mm -hmm. I want this album by this artist. And 
you look for it and maybe find it, see what the different stores are selling it for and that's it. Whereas you mentioned the hunt and that, I think that's what's key to the record store because mm. maybe you go to the record store to buy a specific album, but then you browse and you don't have that same experience browsing online. I guess you can, but it's not quite the same because it online is targeted. You know, mm -hmm. you want this yeah. specific thing. And for being at the record stores, um, you know, it's a, it's a broader experience. I remember this would be the 80s when we had a Tower Records and uh, they had this, the import section was at front, in front. And every time I went there, I would just, I would go through each bin to see what they had from the imports. And, you know, I wasn't looking for anything specific. I didn't know what I was going to find, but that's what you did to yeah. see what was there and might be available. So um, certainly for browsing, I think that's what people people could use a record store for. Um, what the ones they have here? I mean, one of the one of the best ones they have here where I am in Seattle is Easy Street. And uh, they're always doing in stores. Mm -hmm. And they also have a little cafe in there. Oh, cool. So, <laughs> so it is about and community. Also, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, well, West Seattle is a very sure. community sure. type of place. So stores are trying to do that. Or there's another store I go to here called Neptune Music, mm. which is subterranean. It's in a basement <laughs> and it's just crammed with stuff. It has just about oh, every They have VHS and 8-track tapes. <laughs> uh, too small to do an in-store. But, you know, I think yeah. they just have a devoted clientele. That's a place where you go to browse because yeah. it's a used store. So you there really you don't know what you're going to find. A place like Easy Street does have new and used records, so you can expect to find new records there. But sure. others, it's, I don't know, like a treasure hunt. Because if you go to a place that is primarily a used record store, you don't even know what they're going to have there. So I guess it would depend um, these days if people want that kind of experience. Because as you say, there's no um, waiting time. And maybe people just want things faster and they well i don't want to spend half an hour looking yeah. through records yeah well, the record store day tried to encourage that kind of mindset you know these are the records that they're putting out maybe the stores are at will have them yeah. maybe they won't yeah wait yeah. to go there and physically look through those bins does the kind of the renewed interest in record stores the popularity on a saturday afternoon does that surprise you um <clears throat> i don't i don't really remember if it did surprised me or not oh that's a good idea and then well maybe i was a bit surprised because you, you didn't know is is vital even popular now but mm. certainly in the early years you'd go and there'd be lines outside stores or if you'd go in to look there'd be you know people crowded around and and such mm -hmm. trying to do that so it, it did show that there was uh, a kind of well it was fulfilling a need that perhaps others thought wasn't there well it obviously was because yeah. people are going out and they're spending time looking through the bins to to buy this stuff and there would be the popular releases and you could see the ones that weren't popular because they'd all be left behind there'd be <laughs> five to ten copies of you know one of the loser albums and yeah. the others were harder to find yeah <laughs> are you um <clears throat> my last question for you and again i won't hold you to this i know it's the most impossible question but and and I've asked a lot of our people uh, in, who work in the vinyl world over the past couple of months the same question. And are you hopeful for the future of vinyl? Are you afraid? 
um, for the future of vinyl. I mean, when we get the numbers, and I think we'll be getting 2023's numbers in a couple of weeks, will will we continue to see this, this, and this? Um, will that continue? Will it crash? Will it plateau? I, I'm asking you to predict the future, please. Hmm. Well, I'm not sure. I guess I'd say it would probably plateau. That's a safe I mean, there's a lot of guess. other outside things that, that would weigh into that, like hmm. the economic situation sure. in general. Uh, because if when times are tight, uh, entertainment is one of the first things that people cut. Sure. And maybe as years go by, it might get harder to to find the equipment to play it on the turntable and the receiver and mm. that uh, you have to spend more money. And, and so that, that might make it more difficult. Yeah. I know someone I talked to at Sub Pop, he thought there'd be a CD revival soon because they're so cheap now. Mm. That seems sometimes that seems well. Well, here's an interesting thing. When a format goes out of fashion, it becomes really cheap. And that was what happened with vinyl, where you could see records for one or two dollars. Then suddenly it was resurging, and those same albums were selling for a lot more. You know, the $2 album is now a $10 to $15 album. Easily. But that didn't happen with eight tracks. That went out of fashion. They went out of fashion, and they just never came back. They never came back. I think they were put straight in the landfill. <laughs> well, listen, I won't take more of your time. Um, the book is great. All of your books are great. There's so much uh, rich history there um, that you've covered over the years. So I really do appreciate um, that work that you've committed to over the years. So thank you for that. And thank you for doing this show. Well, thanks for having me on your show. Thank you all for listening. And another shout out to Jillian for appearing on the show to talk about vinyl because I love doing that. Uh, I also love making vinyl and I want you to check out our new sponsor, Hellbender Vinyl, Pittsburgh's newest and only pressing, allegedly, apparently, I got to look that up, but that's incredible only pressing plant in Pittsburgh, Hellbender Vinyl. Of course, you know, globalization, doesn't matter where you are in the world, you just got to shop for the best deal. And so wherever you are, you can check out hellbendervinyl.com. Thanks so much for listening. And if you want the notes from today's episode and to dive a little bit deeper into the history of vinyl records and what we can do moving forward as we make records as record labels, then you can go to otherrecordlabels.com slash vinyl history. That's all one word, otherrecordlabels.com slash vinyl history. <laughs>